Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories of nature's fury in the form of earthquakes. First, he talks about the 1693 Sicily earthquake, which transformed the architecture and culture of the island forever. Then he talks about the 1755 Lisbon earthquake, which in a day devastated a powerful kingdom which never fully recovered. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Vincentius Boniutus, a Sicilian noble, wrote in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society in 1694 that the great secrets of nature are so inscrutable that we find them far out of reach whenever we go to form a true and nice judgment of them. He was talking about the awesome power of nature in a first-hand account of the 1693 Great Sicily Earthquake, which occurred on January 11th, 327 years ago, today. It was the most powerful earthquake in recorded Italian history. It was so devastating that it literally transformed the entire nature of human settlement in Sicily. It is history that deserves to be remembered. With an area of nearly 10,000 square miles, Sicily is the largest island in the Mediterranean, lying south of the Italian peninsula in the central Mediterranean. Archaeological evidence of human habitation on the island goes back at least to 12,000 BC. Its location in the central Mediterranean made Sicily a battleground between empires. Sicily played a central role in wars between the Greeks in the Peloponnesian War, between the Greeks and Carthage in the Sicilian Wars, between Rome and Carthage in the Punic Wars, between the Ostrogoths and the Eastern Roman Empire in the Gothic War, and a protracted Muslim conquest followed by a conquest by Norman descendants of Vikings. Sicily became a kingdom under Roger II of Sicily on Christmas Day, 1130. The kingdom would endure for nearly 700 years, although the crown would be connected through personal unions, also called composite monarchy, with other kingdoms. From the 15th to the 17th centuries, the crown of Sicily was a personal union with the kings of Spain, and Sicily was ruled by a viceroy who would be responsible for trying to integrate local powers with the global system and the desires of the king, a complex task that was often unsuccessful. Historian Fernando Cimitaro argues that the competition among the various local political entities essentially rendered Sicily ungovernable. The 17th century proved to be a significant challenge for Sicily. It was a period of population growth and integration into world markets, where Sicily became a major exporter of grain and silk. But it was a period of political discontent and disaster. Periodic droughts and exhaustion of soil due to grain monoculture led to periodic food shortages and near famine. The shortages, along with the economic recession and taxation, resulted in discontent and frequent riots and uprisings. Plague struck the city of Palermo in 1624, killing as many as 10,000. The outbreak was supposedly stopped by the interdiction of St. Rosalia, whose name is still invoked in time of plague. 
1669, Mount Etna, the most prominent landmark on the island and one of the most active volcanoes in the world, erupted. The lava flow destroyed entire towns. Then, on the east coast of Sicily, on January 9th, 1693, the ground shook. Earthquakes are generally measured using two scales. Seismic magnitude scales represent the inherent force of the earthquake, while seismic intensity scales measure the local intensity of shaking and its effects. While the seismic energy causes the shaking, how much of the energy is radiated as seismic waves differs by factors such as the location and depth of the epicenter, or point where the earthquake originates. Intensity scales are based on local, often untrained observations of the effects of an earthquake, and as such, can be used to help identify the location of the epicenter, places with greater damage or closer to the epicenter. Intensity scales can also be determined from historical accounts, allowing estimates of the magnitude even before the advent of instrumentation. The most common intensity scale used today is the Mercalli Modified Intensity Scale, or MMI. First formulated by volcanologist Giuseppe Mercalli in 1883 and revised several times since, the current version of the scale has 12 categories, although the 11th and 12th categories occur so infrequently that the United States Geological Survey only uses 10 categories, incorporating categories 11 and 12 into the 10-plus category. Based on the reports of the January 9, 1693 earthquake, the earthquake had a magnitude of 6.2 on the moment magnitude scale. The damage was significant, ranging as high as 11 on the Mercalli Modified Intensity Scale, meaning that virtually all masonry structures are destroyed, with intensity 8 or severe damage in multiple towns and cities along the east coast of Sicily. In his contemporary account, Boniutis described the effect. Almost all the edifices in the country were thrown down, whereupon some were very high and strong-built towers. A great part of the city of Catania, with many others, was demolished, and a great many buildings in Valdenoto, Syracusa, were also much flattened. Numbers are unclear, but at least hundreds died. But even in an area where seismic activity is common, the earthquake was significant, more powerful than the earthquake that in 2011 caused significant damage in Christchurch, New Zealand. But the thing is, this wasn't the real earthquake. It was what seismologists call a foreshock. The earthquake struck around 9 p.m. on January 11th, lasted about four minutes, according to Bonaiutis, of a type that he called a pulse or a stroke from its resemblance to the beating of an artery. It was in this country impossible to keep upon our legs or in one place on the dancing earth. Nay, those that lay along the ground were tossed from side to side as if on a rolling billow. The effect was massive, seriously affecting an area of more than 2,200 square miles. Bonaiutis explained, so horrid and amazing a shake was at once all over Sicily, of which it left, if not destroyed, yet at least every part miserably shaken. Some 70 towns and cities in Sicily were destroyed in the earthquake, with Category 8 intensity, meaning severe damage along almost the entire east coast of the island, and damage also in Italy and the island of Malta. Fissures opened to the ground from the width of a hand to what Bonaiutis described as great gulfs. He wrote, in the city of Noto, in a street a half a mile long, built of stone, which at present is settled into the ground and quite hanging on one side, like a wall that inclines. And in another street before it is an opening big enough to swallow a man and a horse. The earthquake created landslides where great rocks were loosened and thrown down from the mountains everywhere. And in the county of Sortino, inhabited by about 5,000 persons, a great number perished in the houses which were beaten down by them in their way as they rolled down from the hills. 
In some places wells dried up, in other places they overflowed or smelled of sulfur. In one valley the landslides created a dam that then created a lake that was described as being three miles around and of considerable depth. The magnitude was estimated to be 7.4, 63 times as powerful as the January 9th foreshock, and more than four times more powerful than the earthquake that devastated Haiti in 2010. It was the most powerful earthquake in recorded Italian history. The death toll was horrific. The Viceroy, the Duke of Uccetta, estimated that about 60,000 people died under the ruins of the earthquake. That represented about half of the population of southeast Sicily. Immediately following the earthquake, the sea was seen retreating across some 140 miles of the coast. The harbor in the city of Augusta went dry. It was the precursor to a tsunami, with waves as high as 30 feet, some traveling nearly a mile inland. A contemporary newspaper said that in the city of Augusta, the tsunami killed many of those people, especially women and children, who, alerted by the big foreshock of two days before, were camping near the pier. Boniutis estimated that of a population of 18,914 in Catania, approximately 18,000, or 95%, died in the earthquake and tsunami, although other sources say the death toll there was around 12,000. At least half of the population of Ragusa was killed, and approximately a quarter of the population in the cities of Syracusa, Augusta, and Noto. The damage continued. Viceroy Uccetta reported 25 aftershocks, continuing to July of 1694. Some were described as being as severe as the original quake. And in the aftermath, as is common with such disasters, disease spread due to the lack of shelter, food, and clean water. Boniutis listed illnesses ranging from foolishness and madness to malignant, mortal, and dangerous ones in great number, with delirium lethargies, where there has been any infection caused by the natural malignity of the air, infant mortality has followed. The smallpox has made great destruction amongst children, and in short, there has been no state nor condition which has not had its share in so universal a calamity. But the earthquake also transformed the island and beyond. One of the most extraordinary impacts of the earthquake was in the rebuilding in a homogeneous late Baroque style. The reconstruction was unique for several reasons. Many cities had to be completely rebuilt, some at new locations. The ruins of Old Noto, some four miles from where the city was rebuilt, can still be seen. Others on new town plans, others on existing town plans. This allowed a flexibility of construction and plan not commonly available in the rest of Europe, where few new cities were being built. Nobility and power was uniquely concentrated in Sicily and became even more concentrated through inheritance, as so many had died. The viceroy appointed a skilled administrator, the Duke of Camastra, who quickly granted the city's hit a four-year tax suspension to rebuild, and decreed that the building would be around piazzas and wider streets rather than narrow medieval streets. The plan was not just for aesthetics, it was also reduced the damage in future earthquakes. The reconstruction included talented architects such as Vincenzo Sinatra. The unique, highly ornamented style that came to be called Sicilian Baroque was described in one architectural magazine. The buildings, conceived in the wake of this disaster, expressed a light-hearted freedom of decoration, whose incongruous gaiety was intended, perhaps, to assuage the horror. The style continued to develop into the late 18th century, and was so influential that it transformed architecture in cities in Sicily and Malta that had been unaffected by the earthquake. The style, which so defines Sicily and Malta today, was a direct result of the devastation of the earthquake. There's still disagreement over the location of the epicenter, whether it was on the coast or offshore, and the location has still not been positively identified. There's some evidence that the 1669 eruption of Mount Etna might have caused a stress transfer that helped to trigger the 1693 earthquake. 
Some sources claim that Etna was erupting during the earthquake, but actually most agree that it was dormant after its 1669 eruption. While there's a lot that is not known about the 1693 Sicily earthquake, there's a surprising amount we do know. A 2009 article in the journal Transactions of the Built Environment notes that the Sicilian earthquake of 1693 is the first catastrophic seismic event in the world that can be studied and analyzed in depth for the amount of contemporary evidence and the quality and complexity of the reactions triggered in many areas. The devastation of the earthquake transformed the island of Sicily, which thrived in the 18th century compared to the disasters of the 17th century. It's evidence that natural disasters destroy more than buildings. They transform cultures. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. So you got to talk about it, you know, in the early part of this video, but Sicily itself, of course, has has a fairly unique history because of its position. And, I, you know, I mean, those some of that's this, these accidents of history. But, you know, one of the accidents of history is that it sits on a particularly uh, complex fault line right through there in the Mediterranean. It is, yeah. I mean, the same accident that put it in a place where everybody was conquering Sicily all the time because you could use that, you know, with Italy. Uh, I mean, who knew that it was run by Normans that were descendants of Vikings at one point? But uh, but that same thing put it in a spot where it's always volcanically active. I mean, Mount Etna is one of the most active volcanoes in the world. The, the disasters like this are always interesting to talk about because one of the things, it's always shocking how much yeah. damage they do. And it's always shocking that there's more death as afterwards than there was during the initial shock. Uh, but it's also so shocking how quickly they're yeah. forgotten. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think probably even people in Sicily are, are not always familiar. I think when we when we posted this video, some people were saying, "I didn't know about this," uh, even though you're sitting in the same place where it could happen again. Because you got, you know, if you got good land, you got a good view. Uh, it's it's easy to forget that you know, ten generations ago, everything yeah. you built fell down. Uh, and so this, you know, Sicily's in a place where that that could happen. And uh, I mean, it's not you know not the only one. I mean, Pompeii still, or, you know, uh, 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 Naples. Uh, uh, yeah, Vesuvius still <laughs> Naples off, is right? sitting right there, Vesuvius, yeah, so, and, you know, just waiting, I guess. Yeah, as if it can't happen again. You know, like you go over to the ruins, going, "This is this is really interesting." Like you know, that that's it. Yeah. right there. Yeah, well, and, and this is you know that's you're talking about a place Sicily's fairly familiar with earthquakes, and yet yeah, they they talk about the, you know yeah. this particular earthquake was a was a pretty dramatic one. Yeah, yeah. It was whatever you have, whatever you get used to. I mean, they always talk. My whole life, they've been talking about when the big one's going to hit yeah. California. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can have. I mean, every earthquake seems big until the next one's yeah. bigger. But that's. I, I think because uh, one of the things we talk about here in here is that this was this is ten times as powerful as the earthquake yeah. that hit Haiti in two thousand ten. Because I think modern audiences might remember how devastated Haiti was and how important that was at the time. Even even though that's starting to yeah. fade in memory too. I mean, it's amazing. You know how quickly we forget things like natural disasters uh but uh, when you when you put that in perspective 10 times as much as that one that devastated haiti that we thought was you know so massive at the time uh, there's no earthquake that we're experiencing today that's on that yeah. scale i mean the, you know when we have earthquakes we still have them all the time we haven't had one that was as big as that yeah. right uh and uh, that it's 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 terrifying it's horrifying to think about you know especially as much as we build how sanguine we've gotten because you know the earth is, is geolo geologically active as it's always been so the same thing that made this 
obviously a place that was constantly being, you know, conquered uh, is the same reason that, I mean, you know, sitting there in the middle of the Mediterranean between Africa and Europe is the same reason uh, uh, that it is particularly vulnerable to volcanoes and earthquakes. And it's, you know, I think today we, we, and we do, we have better systems for how you survive an earthquake and we build our buildings differently. And uh, certainly they're Mm -hmm. more strong uh, than they were and they tend to, well, and in some ways actually they're more flexible because that's, uh, that was a big problem in, in, in some of these, in both of these stories that we're talking about today is that the, the stone uh, buildings that they were building, yeah. the, the problem. Yeah, it's such a solid building, and it turns out that it's, you know, it, the stone, you know, doesn't yeah, have any has given, no, no, yeah. no place for the shock you to know, go. We, we think we have better systems for predicting, but I mean, I think that those are still very, uh, uh, I, I think today still, there's no perfect way to predict earthquakes, even, you know, even by, you know, and you don't know. I mean, it's because it's they had a pre-shock. Uh, that was significant. I mean, you would have thought that was the earthquake until the earthquake yeah. came. So I, you know, it's uh, uh, so maybe you know structures wouldn't be as vulnerable today. But now we have a lot more people that are living in the in the area where these could True. occur. And uh, you know, it's uh, it, I mean, certainly there will still be natural disasters. And one of the things about talking about the history of these disasters is it's shocking the power of them. You know, that you have to put into perspective that yeah. that could happen. I mean, we've talked about a lot of earthquakes, right? I'm not too far from New Madrid, uh, and uh, it, it you know puts you in perspective that you know. Whatever you want to say about human history, and one of the things about these two is how much they yeah. change history. Like Sicily is a very different place because of this earthquake. I mean, the whole architecture of Sicily is different because of this earthquake. But uh, uh, the, how much it impacts human history that it still yeah. can. And you know, we don't know that anything, anything we think is important today, uh, anything that we think is the big issue of the day today, could easily be wiped off yeah. those front pages very quickly uh, by a single massive volcanic eruption or a single massive earthquake the size of the one that hits. Well, and the truth is, yeah. I, we, you very rarely are faced with the actual reality of it, of of dealing with an earthquake like this. You know, if, if the San Andreas fault goes and has like a nine magnitude earthquake in California, uh, despite you know places like San Francisco that have really built to survive earthquakes, we might find out that you know. Those buildings have, one, been aging, but two, that they were built to survive earthquakes that uh, that when the 10,000-year earthquake comes by, you know, that that, that, that just mm-hmm. wasn't enough. And I, I don't know. I mean, how do you build for the the... 10,000 year earthquake. Well, you know, I mean, they said despite all that effort, I mean, when there's when there's earthquakes in California uh, and uh, earthquakes that are very small compared to some of these yeah. earthquakes in history, I mean, they were massive at the time, you know, the the, the raised highways and stuff like that, still oh, yeah. a lot of death. Uh, so, I mean, earthquakes today still kill a lot of people. They're still extremely dangerous. I mean, we certainly haven't figured out the secret to surviving earthquakes. Uh, and uh, which also can cause tsunamis. I mean, natural disasters still yeah. occur today. But when you look back historically, you get a you know you can see and you can pick out some of these you know these the one in ten thousand yeah. year earthquakes that that we can still remember. And we see that gosh, we have we have no idea the power of nature yeah. in front of us. Uh, I mean, we just we we just don't seem to conceive of how much that. Well, can and there be. might simply to uh, there there are some natural disasters that we might honestly just not be able to fully prepare for uh, that's that's yeah. that's the thing about nature and well when you talk about you know if you talk about something more like like an asteroid hitting the earth or something like that there's i all you could all you can do for that is hope it doesn't happen uh, and that's i mean that might be where we're at when you're talking about a, a truly extreme earthquake is that there's just there's mm-hmm. we can you know make what preparations we can but just like here you know even when they have this pre-earthquake uh there's no way to know that it, today we don't even know. We might be able to warn people to say, well, this one hit, but there might be a bigger one. But there's not really – I don't think there's a way for us to say for sure that there's going to be a bigger one. No, I don't th- – I mean, you'll hear – a matter of fact, when we post someone will say, oh, someone on YouTube says they figured out how to 
predict earthquakes perfectly or whatever. You hear that sort of stuff, but I mean, no one seems to agree uh, that you can do that. And if we could, you know, they, they, we wouldn't have the death that we have. And, you know, maybe something, like you said, afterwards, after an earthquake, the people that were dying of cholera because the water was foul, or the people that were dying of the fires that followed and stuff like that, maybe we're better at that. Maybe we're better at digging people yeah. out of rubble so that you're more likely to live. But I mean, massive earthquake, what, in the Middle East this year? And I mean, there were, there were yeah. you know... There were plenty of deaths, and, and that will continue to go. So certainly, I mean, one lesson to learn from this is, ah! <laughs> Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> ah! Yeah, because there's, I mean, of all the things in history, I mean, this is, these are the ones that you really can't do anything about. Uh, but historically, they're also just very interesting, too, because you really can't know a people until you know these things that have happened to the people and how much that sticks in legend. And it's interesting to wonder, you know, in prehistory, before stuff was written down, when this was carried as oral history, how, ma how many of the stories... I mean, who knows if the biblical flood was talking about a, uh, a tsunami that came after an earthquake uh, or, or something like that. I mean, the, the, this stuff, you know, we, there's these things that are kind of tied into oral histories that are hard to yeah. interpret that really might, you know, these disasters. I mean, they're, they're massive. They, they wiped out, you know, in, you know, whole towns and villages and small civilizations, maybe whole civilizations, too. Uh, and, uh, and so those are those are stuck in collective memory somewhere as we yeah. try to pass on the stories without having all details. As much as we know now, I mean, imagine, I mean, at the time when these were occurring in the in the in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, almost always there were, you know, theological explanations. This was the punishment of God. So I, I imagine that that was true in prehistory Probably. as well. And it's difficult, uh, you know. We, we, they talk about, you talk about in this one, that it was one of the first ones that we're able to really uh, learn information about because of how well recorded, uh, you know, reactions and damage mm -hmm. and stuff is. And still compared to, you know, a modern one, we're, we're making guesses in terms of we, we're not sure mm -hmm. where the, the epicenter was. And we're, you know, we're not really sure exactly what the damage scales were. We're, we're basing it on reports. Uh, and and we can talk mm -hmm. about this one now and say like oh these these are good reports but you know we we've done earlier ones like we wrote uh, I wrote it one on the an earthquake in like 1202 and we're we're only really learning stuff about that uh, scientifically based on you know they're going in and finding uh, remnants of the fault of where they've they've seen where they can actually mm -hmm. see where rocks have moved and stuff it's incredible that we can do that that kind of work uh, but it's that's this is fairly recent. And you do wonder, you know, 5,000 years ago, if an earthquake of this level hits, I mean, it's going to remain in memory. We, t we You can see how this one impacted history in that Sicily, like you said, Sicily's a different place. And it kind of invented this whole new kind of architecture. And it seems like maybe there are things like that that last longer than the memory of the earthquake, uh, of the specifics mm -hmm. of the earthquake that we remember and we can't ne necessarily decipher now. Because everyone, you know, now you go mm -hmm. to Sicily and see these beautiful things. And lots of people commented on the video that you know they didn't know that this was why sicily had this architecture yeah, yeah you don't necessarily write that on the wall yeah so i mean i mean so we i mean you remember i mean people remember mount yeah. st helens or here I, I live outside of st louis and so when the when the river got really high there's some marks on the walls about where the you know where the flood was uh but you only remember them for for so long uh, and uh, so the sometimes the buildings remain i mean these buildings seem yeah. ancient well they were actually new after the earthquake uh, and they might be new again after the next earthquakes. Yeah. These are always there. I mean, it's just the stories are always shocking. They always catch you just completely by surprise at the extent of what happened. 
Uh, and it's uh, it's important, like everything else we do, history deserves to be remembered, that we go and document this and try to remember it, but partly because it will yeah. happen again, but partly because that, I mean, our the history of humanity is also the history of what humanity yeah. has survived. And it's amazing what the ways it impacts culture and in unexpected ways. I mean, I think that's a cool a cool lesson from this one is the ways that that it mm -hmm. truly altered, I mean, the way that people in Sicily live. But you could say that, you know, about the San Francisco earthquake. Uh, San Francisco as a city is, is definitely marked by uh, that, what, the 1906 mm -hmm. uh yeah, the yeah, that Empire, certainly yeah, affected yeah. how that city uh, has evolved and built. And it's, I mean, you can see that memory in the way that mm -hmm. uh, we built things. And it, I mean, I, I think that's kind of incredible and in how they make these plans. I mean, you you have Sicily, which has, you know, wider avenues and stuff like that, uh, simply because the, their cities that looked more medieval uh, were wiped out. And and we yeah. talked about, you know, there was some unique history to that in, in Paris, but it wasn't because of an earthquake. It was just because uh, the he still the the emperor still had the power to say you know i'm going to knock out all of central paris uh and build new avenues mm -hmm. and and that's you know this is a this is similar in ultimately they look similar because they've got these wider avenues but for completely different reasons and i think that's an interesting an interesting way to examine you know how how the world has gotten to be like it is because we have to live in it you know you, you people are living in the mm -hmm. way that in the the effects of sicily and that how they get to work and whether they can drive on the roads and stuff like that owes something to this event. Yeah, yeah. Well, it would be completely different if they still had the medieval character yeah, of those cities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's... Uh, but, I mean, everywhere you go, uh, whatever great city that you have, they've always had the great yeah. fire or the great earthquake or sometimes <laughs> many of those. Uh, and it's it's amazing that, you know, cities still survive because uh, so many of the cities that we consider great cities of the earth uh, at some point, you know, were almost yeah. completely devastated and they, they rebuilt. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? I'm always watching lots of Magellan TV, but one of them I uh, was just looking at, it was really interesting to me, uh, but it, it's called Hoax or History, the Michigan Relics. Huh. Uh, and I, I had never heard of these things, but in, in the latter part of the 19th century, early into the 20th century, they discovered thousands, maybe as many as 10,000, though they generally will argue around 3,000, of artifacts in Michigan that suggested there was a prehistoric culture in Michigan that knew Christianity. I've never huh. heard of them. It's fascinating. And it's that the, the, you know, the, the question is, are those hoax or are they real? Uh, I, what I will say, I don't want to spoil it for anybody on, on where it all goes, uh, except there is still controversy today over the things. Uh, but uh, uh, it's really, the way they present it was great because you know, they'll have the person talk about, this is why this must be real. And you're like, yeah, absolutely convinced. You're like, you're right. That can't possibly be fake. And then the next person will come along and say, this is why it's <laughs> fake. And you're like, you're right. That can't possibly be real. So it does, it really, they really do a great job of what they talk about in the video, which is to say, is this a myth? Is this, you know, fact or fiction. In any, I mean, if it's real, for heaven's sake, oh. this is an, an incredibly, you know, interesting piece of history. Um, they're largely not well known because they're largely considered to be fakes. It was something I'd never heard of, which, which I love in the history guy. Uh, it is uh, history that deserves to be remembered. And, you know, the bottom line, even if it's a hoax, uh, it is such an amazing hoax. There's some real effort put into these things that, uh, that I mean, that that even is important historically. And so they have largely all been collected together to a single museum in Michigan. And the video is about the relics and how they were found and about the controversy about whether they're real or not. What have you been watching on the history or on Magellan TV? You know, I was watching something very different. One of the things that, you know, we're interested in, and I think we talk about this sometimes, is, is space. And so I caught this one that's called Exoplanets, Thousands of New Worlds. And... 
one of the things it brought up early on in the documentary was that until until very recently, uh, we saw all kinds of exoplanets in fiction, you know, on Star Wars and Star Trek and all this stuff. And we kind of took for granted that there would be planets uh, elsewhere in, in the galaxy. But we actually had no evidence, no proof that there that there were any planets anywhere except here. Uh, until the 1990s, and that's uh, that's actually kind of incredible to me. That kind of kind of rocked my world because I was like, huh, I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. That that we we had expected that there would be planets, but we didn't actually have proof of it. Yeah, I mean, you think about that. It takes a darn yeah. good telescope. I mean, to be able to see that planets are relatively small. And so that's that's what it's about. Is it's about talking about how how we figured out that there were exoplanets. Uh, but it has to do with how we've seen transits and how we can watch the the light of a star dip slightly when a planet goes in front of it. But it's amazing to to hear honestly from the people who made these discoveries. Uh, the first people who were really interested in finding exoplanets at times where other scientists thought it was kind of silly science and also about how it turned into a very very serious science and it goes into to where we are you know to where we are today where we've put the james webb space telescope up there which is supposed to uh we we think it's going to essentially revolutionize uh the the number of planets we've seen because we've we've discovered something like i was i was just looking it up it's like 5400 exoplanets it's amazing that we've really transformed our understanding of the the universe huh. in such a short time yeah and that and that and that changed your whole idea on you know that when we talk about life or whatever there's a lot more planets there's a lot more possibility that we'll you know run into the star trek universe yeah or the star wars universe yeah yeah it's, i love about magellan tv you never know what you're going to watch uh and uh, they've got great space uh they've got great na- nature documentaries they've got uh, a lot of really interesting true crime documentaries they've got all sorts of history modern history ancient history uh his- world war history uh civil war history wherever you go and and they're all just great i mean i have never literally never run into a documentary of magellan that i started watching that i didn't finish and of course if you are a listener or watcher of the history guy you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash history guy where we will always have a deal for you sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free again that's try.magellantv.com slash history guy Next up, the History Guy tells the story of the 1755 Lisbon earthquake. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. It was November 1st, 1755, and an Anglican clergyman, Reverend Charles Davy, had just finished writing some letters. He later described that morning, There never was a finer morning seen than the 1st of November. The sun shone in all its full luster. The whole face of the sky was serene and clear, with not the least signal of warning of the approaching event. That event was the great earthquake of Lisbon, and it's one of the most important in the history of Europe. It not only changed the face of one of Europe's greatest cities, but it also transformed the politics and economics of the entire continent. It sparked entire new lines of philosophical inquiry during the Age of Enlightenment, and it caused the creation of a brand new science that is still developing today. It is history that deserves to be remembered. While the once vast Portuguese empire had been reduced significantly by the 18th century, in mid-century Portugal was still a world power, and its capital, Lisbon, a center of trade. A significant part of that had to do with the discovery of gold in Portugal's most lucrative remaining colony, Brazil, in the 1690s, followed by the discovery of diamonds in the 1720s. So many Portuguese immigrated to Brazil, as many as 400,000, for the gold rush that the country was deprived of labor, and King John V had to ban further immigration in 1709. 
The mines were also fed by the transatlantic slave trade, and some half a million Africans were kidnapped into slavery to work in the mines, as well as untold numbers of indigenous Indian slaves. The impacts of gold mining on the environment and demographics of Brazil were profound. The mines were lucrative, producing an estimated 350,000 ounces of gold a year. Officially, a thousand metric tons of gold flowed into Portugal from the Brazilian mines in the 18th century, and that much again may have come in without being recorded. By some estimates, in the 18th century, 80% of the gold in Europe originated from Brazil. A significant amount of that went to the crown. The government levied a tax of 20% on all gold extracted, called the Royal Fifths. While collection of the tax was difficult, the penalty if caught evading the tax was to have all your gold confiscated, and revenues from confiscation exceeded revenues from the tax. In addition, an estimated 2.4 million carats of diamonds were imported from Brazil, which ruled the world diamond markets in the 18th century. The result was a great enrichment for the crown. Portuguese merchants also grew wealthy, providing goods such as cloth and metalwares, and of course, slaves obtained in Africa. Portugal was able to pay off debts from years of wars with the Dutch and British, and by mid-century, Portugal was thriving, and Lisbon, its capital and largest city, was a center of international trade. Lisbon is located at the mouth of the Tagus River, the longest river on the Iberian Peninsula. It has a spacious, protected natural harbor that has made it an important seaport and center for trade. With indications of permanent settlement as early as 2500 BC, Lisbon is among the oldest cities in Western Europe. At the turn of the 18th century, Lisbon was, by some accounts, the fifth largest city in Europe, larger than Rome or Madrid or Vienna. A late medieval city dominated by the Ribeira Palace, the 250-year-old main residence of the kings of Portugal, Lisbon in 1755 had a population of some 200,000. It was a city dominated by trade, as evidenced by the placement of the palace along the banks of the Tagus River, near the docks and shipyards. Ribeira Palace translates as Palace of the Riverside. Flush from Brazilian gold, King John V had expanded the palace and transformed its chapel into a massive Baroque church at the beginning of the century. His successor, Joseph I, had built the Royal Opera House attached to the palace in 1755. The opera had opened in March with an opera by composer Davide Perez. Much of the city was built using the distinct 16th century Portuguese Manuelin style, named after King Emmanuel I. Lisbon was a devout Catholic city and had numerous cathedrals, monasteries, and 72 convents. The Church of Santa Engracia had been under construction since 1682, so long that Obras de Santa Engracia became the Portuguese term for never-ending construction project. Lisbon in 1755 was also a city of notorious wealth disparity, where the poor lived in terrible conditions, and so had a reputation for being dirty. November 1st was All Saints Day, and much of the population of the city would have been at church. The royal family had celebrated a sunrise mass, but had left the city as one of the king's daughters wanted to spend the holiday on the coast. It was a bright, clear morning, and most of the population of Lisbon was celebrating mass. The first inkling of what was to come came at approximately 9.30 in the morning. Reverend Davy wrote, I was sat down in my apartment, just finishing a letter, when the papers and table I was writing on began to tremble with a gentle motion, which rather surprised me, as I could not perceive a breath of wind stirring. Christian Stockhaler, the consul of the German city of Hamburg, said, First we heard a rumble, like the noise of a carriage. But then the noise grew. It became louder and louder, until it was as loud as the loudest noise of a gun. Immediately after that, we felt the first tremble. At 9.40, all the church bells started ringing. Accounts vary, but the shaking lasted between three and six minutes. Modern estimates are that the quake had a magnitude between 8.5 to 9, using the moment magnitude scale. 
releasing, in essence, a thousand times as much energy as the 2010 Haiti earthquake. The first great shock was felt over an area between 1.2 and 1.4 million square miles. The shaking was felt as far away as Finland and North Africa, northern Italy and the Azores in the mid-Atlantic. According to author Mark Molsky, the earthquake released 475 megatons of energy, the equivalent of 32,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs. He noted in an interview with National Public Radio in 2015 that it was the largest earthquake to hit Europe in the last 10,000 years. Davy observed that with regard to the buildings, it was observed that the solidest in general fell the first. Massive stone structures have little flexibility to absorb shock. The churches and cathedrals full of parishioners collapsed on themselves, crushing the people inside. The sky became as dark as night from the clouds of dust and debris. A significant aftershock hit around ten and more buildings crumbled. The streets were full of people and animals, trapped or killed by falling rubble. Many, including Reverend Davy, headed for the docks where they would be relatively safe from debris. There they beheld a bewildering sight. The Tagus River had receded. They could see the river bottom littered with old shipwrecks. The people had no idea how to interpret this. Tsunamis in the Atlantic are exceedingly rare. Some people even ventured down, hoping to retrieve treasure from the wrecked ships. The tsunami hit at approximately 10 after 10. A wave 12 meters, nearly 40 feet high, came in, as the Reverend described it, like a mountain. So fast that by multiple accounts, people on horseback trying to outrun it had to gallop at full speed. The tidal waves raced up the course of the river and swept away the docks and at least hundreds of people who had sought refuge there. Reverend Davy narrowly escaped, holding onto a huge fallen beam. The water rushed back and then came again two more times. The tsunami was huge. Waves as high as 20 meters hit the coast of Morocco, where as many as 10,000 people were killed. Three-meter waves hit the coast of England and Ireland, enough to cause damage. Four-meter waves hit islands in the Caribbean. And, a careful review of records reveals, the tsunami reached the coast of Brazil. The smoke was rising even before the waves receded. The city had been lit by candle and lamp, and thousands of candles had been lit for All Saints' Day. The rubble began to burn. Many fires joined into a single blaze, burning the parts of the city that had survived the earthquake and tsunami, and killing those trapped in the rubble. The fire raged for five days, creating a firestorm, a fire so bad that it creates its own wind. It sucked up so much air that people a hundred yards from the blaze asphyxiated. The destruction was terrible. Among the buildings burned to the ground were the Royal Hospital of All Saints, the largest hospital in Portugal, where hundreds of patients were killed in the blaze. The Opera House was in ruins, the Ribera Palace gutted, and with it was lost the 70,000-volume Royal Library, with hundreds of priceless works of art. Original manuscripts and details of early Portuguese explorers like Vasco da Gama were lost. So many records were lost that the entire history of the nation was truncated. The British special envoy to the King of Portugal, Abraham Casters, later wrote that the fire has done ten times more mischief than the earthquake itself. The assessments of the damage vary. Conservative estimates are that 10% of the structures in the city were destroyed outright, and at least two-thirds of the buildings throughout the city so damaged as to be uninhabitable. Other estimates assert that as much as 85-90% to 90 of the buildings in the city were destroyed. Reverend Davy described the city, Every parish church, convent, nunnery, palace, and public edifice, with an infinite number of private houses, were either thrown down or so miserably shattered that it was rendered dangerous to pass by them. Castor's letter to England described this opulent city, now reduced to a heap of rubbish and ruins. Davy quoted a contemporary estimate of 60,000 dead, although those estimates may be exaggerated. 
And Lisbon was not the only city affected, with significant damage throughout southern Portugal and North Africa. The scope of the damage was a shock in the Age of Enlightenment and the implications discussed throughout the continent. Religious thinkers saw the catastrophe as a repudiation of the science of the age and asserted that it was a divine punishment coming as it did on an important feast day and laying waste to all the great cathedrals of the city, which, ironically, were more prone to destruction as the city center was built on sedimentary soil that was more subject to the process of liquefaction. Protestant writers described it as retribution for the Portuguese Inquisition, and Catholic writers saw it as God's rage against the free thinkers and atheists living in the Portuguese capital city, sparking backlash against foreigners like the mostly Protestant British. Priests and monks stood in the streets screaming for people to repent, adding to the panic. The great philosopher Voltaire found the divine punishment idea ridiculous, asking, why Lisbon? Is Lisbon worse than other cities? Is there more sin and evil in Lisbon than in Paris or London? Instead, he used it to attack the philosophy of optimism, represented by people like English poet Alexander Pope, who asserted that everything happens for good, arguing instead that the existence of evil is a fact that must be accepted. Jean-Jacques Rousseau saw it as a repudiation of large cities and saw it as a call to go back to nature. But another reaction was unique. While small numbers of scholars had discussed such disasters as natural events in the past, in the Age of Enlightenment, with a greater idea to publish ideas, for the first time earthquakes were seen widely as natural phenomena to be studied, an idea that challenged the foundation of the power of the church in Europe. Unfortunately, these discussions were mostly fruitless. Immanuel Kant supposed that volcanic action was due to the subterranean combination of sulfur and iron. Other hypotheses had to do with air circulation in the crust of the earth, tremors as a result of electric discharge, or the spontaneous explosion of gases in the underground. The discussion of earthquakes as a natural phenomena with scientific explanation was a tectonic shift in itself, but the theorists of the day could not envision plate tectonics, and their discussion provided little understanding. Estimates are that the earthquake cost Portugal the equivalent of almost half of their gross domestic product, sped the decline of their empire. By the end of the 18th century, the empire that had been described as the world's first global empire was a tiny shadow of itself, transforming Europe and the world forever. King Joseph I considered it a miracle that his family had escaped the earthquake, but he became claustrophobic and paranoid of walls. The royal court was moved into a group of tents on a hillside, and the royal family never moved back to Robera Palace. Although there was enough of the structure left to rebuild, the two-and-a-half-century-old palace of the kings of Portugal was demolished. Joseph was never much interested in governing, and after the earthquake he gave his prime minister, Sebastião José de Carvalho e Melo, complete power, making him the Marquês de Pombal. Ruling as a de facto king, Pombal took many steps following the earthquake, organizing firefighters to extinguish the blaze, restoring law and order by hanging looters, using the army to keep the people from abandoning the city as they needed them to rebuild, moving quickly to dispose of the bodies of the dead to prevent disease, and rebuilding the city on a new modern plan that included new architecture known as the Pombaline style that was some of the first construction ever built to resist earthquakes using flexible wooden structure. Using his power, Pombal engaged in numerous reforms, but also used that power to attack his enemies, becoming a virtual dictator. Perhaps most importantly, Pombal sent throughout the country a series of detailed questions about the earthquake. What time it happened, how long it shook, what direction it came from, what direction buildings fell, when the tsunami hit, how tall the tsunami was. And that data allowed a scientific reconstruction of the event and thus is seen as the foundation of the science of seismology, the scientific study 
of earthquakes. And that discipline still today continues to try to understand and predict seismic events and mitigate their effects. So as you begin this this episode, you know, the Portuguese empire is certainly not like unknown. I think most people understand that Portuguese had this overseas yeah, empire. Yeah. But it's it, I think it's a lot lesser known in, in just... Yeah, I don't. I don't think people. And the thing is, it was the largest. It was yeah. the first, really, and in many ways, it was the largest. Uh, and uh, so, I, yeah, I don't think. I mean, we, you know, we think about the British Empire or something like that. That was that was nothing uh, at yeah. the time. You know, I mean, no one thought about the British Empire. Matter of fact, you know, the first uh, that first agreement with the Pope. You know, about you know, P- Portugal. Portugal gets the the the, the east, and, and and Spain gets the west. Uh, I mean, that really shows yeah. that's that's where the competition was. So, and the thing is, it was still an important empire and a vibrant empire in the 18th century. So, I mean, you, you get to the, the like the First World War. And Portugal participated in the First World War because of its empire. But its participation in the First World War was was small and almost yeah. weird. Uh, and But if you think about it, if, if, uh, if Portugal had, you know, the remnant of empire in the same size uh, that England did, uh, when you rolled into the 20th century, how different uh, would, the yeah. say, the world wars in the 20th century have been? But the Portuguese empire... I mean, was literally shattered in this one earthquake. And we, we talk a lot about earthquakes, but I mean, like I said, this is the largest earthquake that has hit Europe in 10,000 yeah. years. Uh, and it hit uh, one of the largest cities in Europe and one that was for many reasons uniquely vulnerable to it. So, I mean, it literally absolutely took one of the most powerful states in the world uh, and transformed it into, you know, a, a state whose participation is, is now barely remembered. Uh, in, on it's incredible stage. how that happened. You know, Portugal. We we talked a little bit about it in some some history guy episodes uh, before England had you know an, an empire in India. Before there was British India, there was Portuguese India, and there. I mean, that was part mm-hmm. of what the you know Portugal get the the East was part of what that was about. Was that Portugal had all of these uh, trading colonies and power throughout the. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they controlled the spice trade for. I, a long time and that was uh, that was significant yeah. and now now you know it's and the, the british ability british yeah. and french ability to come and take away those those portuguese territories uh really had to do with yeah. what happened uh you know at the in the earthquake uh and uh, so it's yeah it's i mean there's a lot of things that change history but i mean this is rarely can you i mean it's it's almost like talking about uh you know troy yeah. disappearing or or, or uh, i mean atlantis disappearing i mean that you really had this super incredibly powerful empire uh, that almost overnight is just yeah. transformed and it loses this great majority of its wealth and the great majority of its power so that the empire fritters away in just a yep. few years uh, and i mean that's uh, you know, if that could happen to portugal in the 18th century then you know maybe Maybe there was some version of Atlantis, some version of a civilization that literally one cataclysmic event uh, and then was forgotten. And that's that's, you know, once we get into the I mean, once we get into the modern era, Portugal seems like a, you know, a sidelined state is it's they're they're out there doing you know portuguese things in portugal but that's it and they they, they don't really mm-hmm. they don't really have a I mean, and there's still some empire oh, yeah. stuff going on too but i mean you don't you don't think in the in the 19th and 20th century you don't think of portugal as one of the major players yeah. in the world stage uh, and they certainly were until the mid 18th century, and and we would remember them differently if this if this earthquake yeah. hadn't occurred. I mean, I almost certainly would remember differently if this if this earthquake hadn't occurred. Uh, and there's there's more interesting about it too because it's really where the first kind of real study 
of, of, of volcanology and earthquakes and, and seismology and really trying to understand it began. And, you know, they didn't know what was going on at all. But I mean, this is where they first tried to say, can we look at this in some sort of scientific sense? But at the same time, too, I mean, certainly there was uh, an awful lot of looking at it from a mystical yeah. religious sense, too. I mean, the Catholics thought that they were being punished for Protestantism and the, the Protestants thought they were being published for the, the Inquisition. Uh, you know, every, everybody, you know, everybody had a different because how do you explain something this just this massive? And it is the quintessential example of the aftermath being more powerful yeah. than even, I mean, the earthquake was so powerful, hit on a religious holiday, which meant both that it had that meaning to the to the population, but also that everybody was in the biggest buildings in town. They all fell yeah. down on them. Uh, and, you know, that, I mean, that has, there's a lot of, I mean, it, it not only vastly increased the casualties, but it you really, you know, vastly increased the, the that argument that this was some yeah. sort of punishment from God. But the fire afterwards, the tsunami afterwards, which is something they had no experience with. Everybody had run to the docks to escape the fire, and then the tsunami comes and washes everybody off the docks. And I mean, I, it's it's just hard to imagine the level of devastation. And then you know, you, you, your house is falling down. If you manage to get outside of your house, then all of a sudden the whole street's on fire. So you manage to get down to the dock where the street's not on fire, and then there's a, there's a twenty meter wave coming up yeah. the street. And, you know, it's it's I mean, it's and uh, fascinating that the royal family didn't happen to be there. Uh, that they were and and uh, just and you know that has all sorts of religious significance to it too and I mean I it, it's like a disaster movie yeah. today you know you you watch a, you you watch a, like a modern disaster movie and it's, it's almost comic because there's always something you know going on because you have to keep the adventure up and that's what it was like I mean you should write a disaster movie that's occurring yeah. in, the, in the Portuguese earthquake every every step the, was and, was something there was something new and horrible I, the firestorm that yeah and if you lived through it you had to think that oh, was yeah. an act of God and I I mean it was rife with metaphor I I do not blame them uh, if this <laughs> happened today on an incredibly religious holiday and you know specifically killed lots of more people because they were at church and then the fire partially starts because people all had their candles out for all saints day it you would see quite a few people saying oh it seems difficult to imagine that this wasn't you know sent by god yeah yeah we would we would even today be saying this was an act of god yeah and this and i mean at at the time they had they had essentially no other explanation and i i I understand how it really yeah no one knew what their their explanations for why earthquakes occurred are almost comic when you look at it so i mean this is the first time they started to try to ask the question beyond god's mad at you uh but then you know they no one understood plate tectonics or i mean anything that would explain why why you get earthquakes when you get earthquakes but i mean this first time and this is the first real attempt to measure the magnitude of an earthquake based on the damage because there were such clear damage yeah. reporting and so it's really fascinating um and certainly i mean it's you know lisbon is still yeah. a, one of the world's great cities uh and it is still in the same place where i have to occur. wonder i mean you, you mentioned yeah. in the video too of course it was a, it was a big city that had many of the problems that all those old uh, medieval cities essentially had which was that it was dirty and mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that so i, I but but Narrow yeah. streets, a lot of stuff built out of wood that could burn down any time. There was a lot of disparity between yeah. wealth. There were a lot of massive, massive buildings because the city was very wealthy, and those buildings were the ones that were most vulnerable to the earthquake. And yet, it still must have been a—I mean—an incredible city to to visit pre And I mean, it still is today, yeah, but pre seventeen fifty five. I mean, there were sites that. Yeah, yeah, that was. I mean, that was. It was. It was a city that everybody in the world wanted yeah. to see, and it had a whole lot of international population because of that. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's, it's hard to even imagine. But I mean, com- compared to many of the earthquakes in history, uh, it's well. Re- if you go to Lisbon today, I mean, one of the things you're going to do is visit the the ruins of the, yeah. of the churches. I mean, they they actually stabilized some of those ruins. You actually go see how massive and, and this was, and how how much it was destroyed. So 
Appalachia is probably more well remembered yeah. than a lot of of the major earthquakes where we were talking, you know, before about how quickly these things are forgotten. Uh, but you know, I wonder if you live in Lisbon, if you if you if you're in the back of your head all the time, is that that can yeah. happen again? You know, any time. That's that's one of the things. Every time I every time we do one of these earthquakes, you know, now it's fairly well known, and they every time there's any kind of earthquake and you see it in the movies, uh, you you see that the water is going to leave before it comes back. And so uh -huh. every time in the story, when you hear, oh, the, the, everything was dry and people are like, oh, this is incredible. And then, you know, they walk around to see it. And to a modern audience, you're like, oh, disaster oh, yeah. is about to hit. <laughs> you know, this, this earthquake comes and knocks half the town down. It's on fire. You run down to the dock and the water's gone. And they're like, that's peculiar. <laughs> this is, which you, <laughs> where do you think, the, where water do you think the water went? Because I would have been really surprised by that too. Because, you know, now we know that that's, that's something that happens. But if you're someone who is, I, they didn't even especially have, you know, they yeah. had no idea. No one had heard no. of a tsunami in 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 uh, yeah, Western they didn't Europe. Have, I mean, they didn't have any experience. Yeah. I mean, in Sicily, you know, they they there were earthquakes. Nothing like what hit them. In, well, they're in far back in history, but essentially, you know, they the, the people living there would have had memory of earthquakes. And in Lisbon, I mean, they just didn't have the same kind of uh, memory of any kind of thing. And still, the the tsunami. I mean, today, those when when we have those big earthquakes, like we've had several, you know, in the last couple of decades in Indonesia and stuff like that. Uh, those tsunamis are devastating and it is difficult but yeah. but now at least yeah. uh usually uh, when that happens the first thing you try to do is get to high ground and you can see in these places yeah, yeah at least most people know that and a lot of places i mean like uh washington yeah. etc they've tried to make uh they they make the safe spots you know to yeah. run uphill and and but uh, I think uh, tsunami, even even in America, which is you know relatively developed and relatively modern, and 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 uh, has you know scientists that are looking. I think that if we had like a major yeah. earthquake, say on the west coast, uh, that the tsunami could still oh, yeah. kill an awful lot of people who wouldn't have any idea yeah. where to go. Well, yeah. and you don't have very long to think about it. Uh, I think that's you know when yeah. we, when we watch our disaster movies and stuff like that, you know it's it's easy when we're sitting in our couches, uh, but it, with with these folks, it just just like it would be today, even though we have more knowledge. Yeah, I mean, now we've got we've got. Live yeah. footage of tsunamis occurring, in, you yeah. know, in Japan or in, in Indonesia, and it is it is yeah. shockingly fast and it's shocking. So, I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, cer certainly the lesson of these, and we've talked about a lot yeah. of earthquakes, uh, uh, but uh, the, the you know the, the lesson in these partly is just you know uh, nature is really yeah. really powerful, uh, but it always surprises you to how much that transformed history, and then it also surprises you about how you know how we've still not figured this out the lessons you know that we've learned since yeah. we are still as vulnerable to these disasters yeah. as we always were and, you know there's a, there's a tragedy here too we've we've talked about we've had numerous episodes that talk about you know this loss of history and so of course this this had a major impact on history and it made its mark and all of that but it also caused you know the burning of records that we'll never get back and information that that oh, yeah. really could have mm -hmm. i mean could have been of incredible historical importance today and that we will never know yeah, yeah, because it, it was burned in the the firestorm that was i i can't even imagine a firestorm so great that people a hundred yards away have no oxygen they're asphyxiating i mean that is that is an absolute terror i it's, i don't know it's, it's i mean that would be yeah. that would be terrifying uh, I can't imagine in in the in this barely post medieval world what you think of watching people just essentially fall over dead that far away from the fire. I mean, that's got to yeah. that's just got to be terrifying. Um, and th that's just that's where you know Lisbon was was hit by something, and then again and again and again in the immediate aftermath. Yeah, all them. What a 
Man, yeah, at the end of that. Yeah. And then you're, you know, disease yeah. and famine and, and water. And, I mean, I, it, it must have yeah. taken forever to it's, rebuild. Uh, and it, you know, it's a story of human history. I mean, what happens is this disaster hits and all sorts of people die. And then a thousand years later, another disaster hits and all sorts of people die. And in between, people live... Yeah. Uh, totally ignorant that yeah. that's going to happen and that's you know you got you got you got hundreds or thousands of years in between of generations of people where life is good and then you know disaster, disaster. and it's always unexpected and every time that you don't yep. expect it to happen and then and i i just so so i mean yeah, i <laughs> lots of people have experienced yes. disaster in modern times i wouldn't no. minimize that in any way but i mean you have to wonder if you know if what we think of as good times today yeah uh, the if we're just those yeah, people well, in between, uh, you know, if, if every one of us is sitting next to wherever the earthquake or the volcano yeah, is, we have, and we have no idea because there's, there's lots of people who lived that way. And we certainly, you know, this one where they essentially had no warning at all. Uh, it's not even like the, the Sicily one where there was like a pre-earthquake a couple of days before. Uh, I, I mean, literally, the, it just started shaking. Uh, you're just living your normal life, normal day, and then this size earthquake you know in this in this mighty city and this mighty empire and i mean there were a lot of people living in poverty but there were people living in you know opulent wealth yeah i mean you had to think that you know lisbon was this is the nothing's going to happen to lisbon the city is too much too powerful it's too how could could you imagine that in in the you know in a day uh everything will be different yeah and then you know you're dealing with fires and disease and and i you understand how when that hits up your uh, the center of your empire and of your bureaucracy and of your records oh yeah, uh, how yeah. that completely destabilized the entire empire uh because all those other yeah. places had to keep you know they had to keep surviving afterward people had to live there i'm sure that england and france and other powers saw that vacuum uh, i mean that's just how that's just how it worked is that Absolutely. Though, I mean, one of the interesting things apart about it is because, the, you know, the king decided that he uh, uh, just didn't want to deal yeah. with things anymore. I mean, I, I, it's clear that he lived P- PTSD yeah. the rest of his life. Uh, but uh, but he put his prime minister in charge and his prime minister, uh, uh, almost as a dictator, engaged in amazing yeah. reforms because because in the rebuilding. And so there was some modernization there. And, they you know, they literally went out and they, you know, they, they asked every village, when did this happen? When did you get feel the shake yeah. in order to figure out how far earthquakes went and stuff? I they learned so much about earthquakes. But, you know, another, you know, medieval city that was completely rebuilt. Uh, you know, after or, you know, 1755, it's a completely yeah. different city because of that. And, and you know. Again, it just absolutely transformed history. And one of the things that came out of it was someone that, you know, saw a modern enough view to, uh, you know, to make changes because of it. But truly, I mean, that was the the end of the Portuguese empire. I mean, at, at that point, you know, they went from a very powerful empire to, to uh, you know, a, yeah. a poor country. That was you can't always point to a single event that, you know, this is when it happened. Mm-hmm. But this is... Uh, this is one that very, very yeah we don't we don't know about the fall yes. of the Roman Empire but we have a darn good idea of the fall yeah. of the Portuguese yeah that's the, the the fall of the Roman one's always an interesting one about when it exactly happened but at least with Portugal you're you're looking at it, you're like well there's a before 1755 and an after 1755 <laughs> there's an after 1755 <laughs> and it's it's a pretty dramatic difference uh, though you know you might argue that the empire was in decline also before true. that but, but it's I, I mean there's been lots of points you know where an empire's in decline and then it has some kind of renaissance that. Uh, helps it survive mm-hmm. i mean that you could say that with rome many times is that rome existed for a very long time and it had periods of uh, crisis and then periods uh, where you would have you know the the five good emperors and stuff like that where things would be relatively okay and so you still i mean you still made me think that it would 
like we were talking about earlier, these counterfactual ideas of what the world might have looked like if Portugal yeah. had been able to maintain that. Yeah, if Portugal was a much big player on the international yeah. stage, bigger player on the international stage rolling into the 20th yeah. century, uh, uh, when Europe, uh, you know, saw an awful lot of conflict. Uh, what might yeah. that have meant? I mean, in the, I mean, even in the, in the rest of the 18th yeah. and 19th century too, because there was an awful lot of conflict going on with it. So it is. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the fact that you so changed the chessboard yeah. uh, absolutely impacts history following that. And so it's it's interesting as a counterfactual to say, what if the Portuguese Empire had survived, was still powerful uh, into the even 20th with century? That, I mean, you know, we can talk about I mean, the, the Habsburg Empire by the by World War One was certainly you mm -hmm. could argue it was in decline, and yet I mean, World War One mm -hmm. had all. Yeah, they were a major belligerent. It had a lot to do with yeah. these these aging empires and the, the fact they're tangled alliances. And you know, Portugal, if they even if Absolutely. they had had, I mean, there's a big argument that World War One was really yeah. caused by that because of the decline of the Ottoman Empire and the in the you know the Balkans yeah. and all that. Yeah. It's I mean that's it's it's interesting. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.